Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And good evening once again, day 50 of the Biden administration and exactly halfway through his first 100 days in office, the president is marking two big accomplishments. Today, he secured a landmark bill for federal aid and he announced that over 100 million more COVID vaccines will soon be in the pipeline and then in arms across our country. This afternoon, Congress cleared Biden's signature domestic package's $1.9 trillion national relief package. This bill represents a historic, historic victory for the American people. The bill won final passage in the House of Representatives on a straight party line vote, 220 to 211, with Biden looking on from the executive mansion. There we go. There we go. The White House says the president plans to sign the legislation on Friday. Americans should know this aid they're about to get is from the Democrats. That is not a political statement at all. Only Democrats voted for it, not a single Republican in the House or the Senate. This is the most consequential legislation that many of us will ever be a party to. We said if we won those two seats in Georgia, we would get things done. Mr. Ossoff and Mr. Warnock told the citizens of Georgia if they were elected, they would make sure that the actual promises made would be promises kept. This bill offers one of the largest infusions of federal aid since the Great Depression. In many ways, it redraws our social safety net and thus has been described in terms of the New Deal and the Great Society. It includes those $1,400 stimulus checks, extended unemployment benefits, funds for states and small businesses and school upgrades across the country, as well as vaccines, testing, tracing. The first direct payments are expected to go out around the end of this month. Just hours after the House vote, the Dow posted a new record, closing above 32000 for the first time. And now the Biden White House focuses on selling the benefits of this bill to the American public. Tomorrow night, the president gives his first primetime address to the nation. I'm going to talk about what comes next. I'm going to launch the next phase of the COVID response and explain what we will do as a government and what we will ask of the American people. On Tuesday, the president heads to the familiar confines of Delaware County, PA, to talk up the benefits of the stimulus package. Vice President Harris, for her part, will also be on the road traveling to Las Vegas on Monday, Denver on Tuesday. Meanwhile, the Senate has just confirmed three more Biden nominees. 
Merrick Garland as Attorney General, Marsha Fudge as HUD Secretary, and Michael Regan as EPA Administrator. As we mentioned, more Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccines are on the way. Today, the president announced this purchase of another 100 million doses, which another drug company, Merck, is helping to produce. And remember, because it's one and done with the J&J &J vaccine, that means enough for 100 million Americans to get fully vaccinated. This was also the day the state of Texas officially ended its mask mandate, a move now pitting the state against some local officials in the same state who want to continue requiring face coverings in public. There's more on that, a report from Texas later in this hour. But health experts warn these moves to lift restrictions as COVID cases and fatalities slowly decline could have devastating consequences. These numbers that have come down have given us a false sense of security. Uh, we are going to see uh, a big increase, and everything we're doing right now is literally just kind of walking into the mouth of the virus monster as if somehow we're not at risk. There is one other developing story we're following tonight. The Wall Street Journal has obtained an audio recording of a late December phone call between Donald Trump and the chief investigator for the Georgia Secretary of State. The now former president can be heard urging the state official to hunt for voter fraud that did not exist. I want Georgia to know that by a lot, and the people know it. And, uh, you know, something happened there. I mean, something bad happened. If you can get to Fulton, you're going to find things that are going to be unbelievable for the, the dishonesty. When when the right answer comes out, you'll be praised. You know, we have that date of the six, which is a very important date. This is now the second phone call where Trump can be heard begging Georgia election officials to find votes. The Fulton County District Attorney is now conducting, as you may know, this criminal investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the, re re the election results and nothing less. With that, let's bring in our leadoff guests on this Wednesday night. Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent for The New York Times. Lisa Lehrer, national political reporter, also with The New York Times. And Eugene Robinson, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, just to keep things fair, over at The Washington Post. Good evening and welcome to you all, Peter, because you have the most years on the job covering the White House. You get to go first. And a question about where you rank this accomplishment today, this massive bill that's been passed with just Democratic votes. Uh, and do we have it about right saying this is, in a way, a redrawing of the modern social safety net? Well, obviously, it's a big deal for President Biden to come out of the gate and get what he needs to get through, what he promised to get through in the early weeks. Remember, there's a deadline of March 14th when expanded unemployment uh, benefits was set to, to expire. He needed to get it done by then. He has the narrowest of margins in Congress and yet still pushed it through. Now, he didn't do it with any bipartisan votes, which is something he had hoped to do, uh, but he, he did get it through. And you're right. This package is more than just COVID relief. It's really three big goals in one. One is to provide relief to those who've been hurting from the pandemic, including uh, speeding up vaccine uh, distribution and so forth. Another is to pump more energy into the economy. Uh, putting $1.9 trillion into the economy is a big deal, no matter where you put it. And in this case, there's some worries. In fact, it may be too much on uh, the part of uh, uh, some folks who think that they could overheat the economy, but certainly going to give a big jolt 
to economic uh, growth for the rest of the year. And then the third part is what you talked about, which is the social safety net, the idea that this is an anti-poverty bill. You hear a lot of that from the White House these days, that this may, in fact, cut child poverty by half. This is sort of a Democratic wish list of programs and, and spending that they would have liked to have gotten done for years. Now, some of this will expire in a year, so it's only a temporary thing. In many cases, they're going to have to come back uh, and make that permanent if they want to make that a sustained change. But for a president who's just been in office for 50 days, obviously, it's a big deal uh, to get this done. You, you can see why they're so uh, uh, they're cheering at this point. Lisa, great to see you. Great to have you back on the broadcast. It's been too long. As I said, this is going to make lives better among the recipients of what's in this bill. It is also true that it's Biden's story to tell, especially since it was just Democratic voters. How does Biden, however, prevent the Republicans from going into the field with their own prequel before his message is fully out there? Well, right now he's going to go on a sales pitch uh, that's going to kick off tomorrow evening with a White House address. And then we're going to see uh, the president and members of the administration travel around the country. And I think what looms particularly large in their minds is the lessons learned from President Obama's 2009 stimulus bill. And the thinking there is that the president failed to sufficiently sell that piece of legislation and Republicans were able to tag it as a bit of a boondoggle that led to the spark of the Tea Party, which of course provided some of the fiercest opposition to Obama's uh, proposals throughout his time in office. Uh, some folks who worked for the Obama administration will say that's not quite fair, that uh, that President Biden has some economic wins at his back. Uh, all the economic forecasts look like the uh, economy will keep improving, particularly as more people get vaccinated, which will make this easier to sell. It's also more popular uh, than the stimulus was, even among Republicans. I think that's why, although we saw every Republican vote against this bill, we really didn't see the party come out with any comprehensive messaging so far, at least against the legislation. And in part, that's because about a third of their voters, depending on the polls, supported the bill. I had called a bunch of Republican voters in the past uh, couple weeks, and I frequently heard people who said that they are eager, Republicans who said they are eager to see those checks just as much as Democrats. Eugene Robinson, uh, we have a new definition tonight of the word Richard Nixon is famously rumored to have pronounced schutzbar during his presidency. Most of us call it chutzpah, but its new definition is Senator Wicker from Mississippi. And here's what he tweeted tonight. Independent restaurant operators have won $28.6 billion worth of targeted relief. This funding will ensure small businesses can survive the pandemic. One problem, he's a Republican senator from Mississippi. As people instantly pointed out, he didn't vote for this, but he's selling it back home. Does he think his voters are stupid? Maybe. He was contacted and a reporter caught up to him. Uh, we have his briefest answer to this question. I'm not going to vote for $1.9 trillion just because it has a couple of good provisions. So a couple of good provisions. And Eugene, this is this is where it brings us is do you think there's going to be any regret that the Republicans have goose eggs, Senate and House on this, that this bill indeed has a couple of good provisions and it's going to end up helping their constituents? Well, I think that, I think that was an expression of 
regret really from Senator Wicker. And, and, and I think that's, that, that makes it potentially easier for President Biden to get his message across simply because the Republicans don't have a unified message that on this legislation that they think their voters, even their base voters, uh, are going to buy. Uh, if, if they, you know, go on and on about how horrible and awful it is, uh, that is not going to resonate with Republican voters, at least according to polls, most of whom support the legislation. There, there are polls that show most Republicans wanted this to pass, um, to say nothing of, uh, the, you know, almost all Democrats and and the vast majority of independents. This was an extremely popular piece of legislation. And so to the extent that that President Biden has a challenge in, in, in selling it and getting it across, he has the wind at his back. Uh, Peter Baker, uh, should we just for now stop any pie in the sky talk of bipartisanship or or will the next test be infrastructure or as it should appropriately be billed, uh, jobs programs across the country. Republicans have traditionally liked a good public works bill. They haven't always liked paying for it. Yeah, look, infrastructure, of course, has been the, uh, the the golden shimmer out there for bipartisanship now for years. Donald Trump talked about infrastructure. Barack Obama talked about infrastructure. Democrats say they want infrastructure. Republicans say they want infrastructure. And yet, They've never been able to get it. Now, President Biden has promised, of course, that he has been able to figure out how to get things done that other presidents haven't. That he can work across the lines in ways that that other uh, his predecessors haven't been able to. But there's not much evidence of that so far. But you're right. There's an appeal on the part of everybody. Senator Wicker will no doubt have bridges and roads and things in his state that he'd like to get out of an infrastructure bill, as would uh, Democratic and Republican senators from across the country. Now, can they come together to figure out how to divide up that money? Can they come together to figure out how to fund that kind of a project? That's a big, big question. And I don't think that there's any uh, you know, reason right now to suspect that they're necessarily going to be able to overcome the polarization that has been holding this up for years uh, in the next few weeks and months. Maybe they can. This is one of those areas where there is common ground if they choose to seize it. But so far, we've seen that the, the parties in Washington haven't chosen to seize it in, 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 in modern times. And I, I don't know that that's changed. Lisa, back to your unofficial poll of uh, Republicans. They've been four square against this massive bill. And this week, at least, four square behind uh, uh, Dr. Seuss and Piers Morgan. Uh, a serious question. How long can they live on a diet of just distraction? Well, I think part of the issue for the Republican Party is those are the issues that fire up their base. Um, you know, it is talking about Dr. Seuss, Meghan Markle, these sort of culture war, new culture war issues, different than, you know, the guns and marriage issues that we saw decades ago that really get their base energized. It's how you can raise money as an up and coming Republican uh, lawmaker. It's the reason we see so many retirements in the Senate, or part of the reason. And it also speaks to a little intra-conservative media competition where you see these more upstart, uh, more right-wing networks like OANN cutting into Fox News's eyeballs and market share among conservative viewers. So uh, there, it is really hard when the whole conservative ecosystem is really structured around these culture war issues to get a lot of... Um, 
rewards among the conservative base for doing things like working across the aisle on an infrastructure bill. Uh, we'll see if that changes. As I said, uh, Republican voters do like this stimulus bill. So maybe there will be the fever will break and Republican lawmakers will see that there is some uh, political gains to be uh, gotten from passing legislation. But given the way that the conservative world is functioning right now, it, it does seem hard to picture. Eugene, let me get you on record with the question I asked Peter. Is it an overstatement to say that one of the things this bill does is kind of a modern day redrawing of what we've come to know as the social safety net? I, I think it I think it does. It 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 represents a, a significant shift in philosophy and it and it's a, a, a shift back more toward the, the Lyndon Johnson's great society uh, way of, of thinking uh, rather than the Ronald Reagan's way of thinking, which has dominated uh, our public life really since the Reagan era. Um, this is potentially a shift of that magnitude if it can be sustained. I think this legislation is a really big deal. And I think that, that uh, you know, in, in terms of, of Bipartisanship. Look, it, 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 you can't do anything if if Republicans decide to deny Biden the gift of bipartisanship by simply voting against everything. Um, there's nothing you can do about that. Biden makes a gesture. He he makes the offer, and then he moves forward. I think that sets a, an important precedent for for going forward. But but just to answer your basic question, I think this is potentially a really, really big deal uh, for the way this country thinks about attacking poverty, thinks about um, lifting up the, 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 the least of, of, of us um, uh, and giving everybody a chance. To our viewers, because this is an important night, we've asked our uh, leadoff three guests to stay with us through this break for one more segment. And indeed, coming up, a big win for the Biden White House for now. But for them, it's just the first item on the list. We'll talk about this. Will Republicans agree to vote for anything this White House puts forward? And later, three doctors, three different cities, three different frontline battles against one virus in the space of this past year. Where are we now? When are we getting out of the state we're in? The 11th hour is just getting underway on this Wednesday night of remembrance. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. 
LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The American people elected Joe Biden so that so that we can work together. And that's what he's committed to doing. So, you know, there are things like infrastructure investment and immigration. I mentioned he, he's had some meetings in the Oval Office about some of those issues. And we're going to see what we can work together on. So that was Jen Psaki from Just Tonight remaining here with us and part of our conversation, Peter Baker, Lisa Lehrer and Eugene Robinson. Uh, Peter, uh, to you first again in this segment, uh, we talked about what else Biden wants. Let's preview tomorrow night. What can he say? What should he say? What does he want to say to this country that is very eager for better days to come? Well, I think that's one of the things he wants to say is that there are better things to come, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, that there, that the passage of this bill will provide money to those who need it, and that the, the speeding up of the vaccine distribution will provide shots to those uh, who, who desperately need that as well, and that there is a point at which we can see a normal life returning, at least some semblance of it. But I think at the same time, you will hear him, as he has repeatedly over these last few weeks, warn that there's a lot of danger between now and then, that just because we are making progress doesn't mean that uh, it's time to give up uh, public health precautions like masks and social distancing and so forth, particularly for those who have not been vaccinated, which is still the vast majority of the country. And I think that, you know, it, it'll be that mixed message. But he wants to take credit, as Lisa said. I think you'll begin, you'll see him uh, talk about that more than he will talk about other steps like infrastructure at this point, because I think he does want to solidify uh, public awareness of what this bill does and, and to reap the political uh, benefit that usually comes from this kind of thing. All I know is they need a better word for infrastructure. Uh, hey, Lisa, how big a potential trip up, and there's a there's a real human cost uh, to this this issue, is uh, the border and immigration. Knowing that the forces against Biden will get a big assist from the Fox uh, media industrial complex. Oh, for sure. And that is a real problem for the administration. You have this very high number of unaccompanied children coming in through the border. And the administration is really trying to send two messages at once. Don't worry, we're working on a path to establish more legal ways into the country. But also, please don't come now. And those are pretty hard messages to sell simultaneously in South America and Central America. And as a result, they've been left open really to attacks on all sides. Liberals are unhappy with how the children are being held. They're out of facilities. There's all kinds of restrictions because of the pandemic. It's a very difficult situation. And it brings up echoes of, you know, the, the things that happened during the Trump administration that were very uh, traumatic for the children, but also for the Democratic Party and for many people in the country. And conservatives, of course, are eager to blame as they often do, the influx of um, of migrants into the country on Biden. So he's really getting hit from all sides on this. And you're right. It is the kind of issue that um, Republicans are very eager to leverage against him and, and could do with some success, potentially. 
Hey, Eugene, I want to play for you Senator Mike Lee. He was commenting on Fox News about H.R. 1, our discussion on the other side. I think I disagree with every single word in H.R. 1, including uh, the words uh, but and and the. Everything about this bill is rotten to the core. This is a bill as if written in hell by the devil himself. Eugene, I know you have written forcefully about the need to pass H.R. 1. There are a slew of Republicans and even some Democrats cautioning about making great the enemy of the good, cautioning that it's what else is in this bill that is weighing it down, that is putting a mark on its side. And if they could strip out and consider and vote for voting rights alone, it might be a different story. But I want to hear you out on it. Well, look, I I think the important parts of this bill are um, protecting voting rights. And and that includes things like ensuring that people have easy access to voter registration, ensuring that people have have easy and easy and adequate access to the polls. And mail-in voting is 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 going to it's only going to increase and in early voting and that sort of thing. Uh, and to 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 block to stop um, or obviate some of the the draconian restrictions that Republican state legislatures are trying to impose on voting across the country, because the one thing Republicans the, the, the agree on it's kind of the the, the philosophy of the party now uh, is that they have to in some way restrict. Uh, the voting uh, opportunities of of constituencies that vote for Democrats, or else the Republicans are going to remain a minority party, and, uh, and, and unless, of course, they start changing their policies and, and and develop some that actually appeal to voters, but they don't seem to want to do that. They want to do it by subtraction, subtracting Democratic voters people of color, young people, uh, Democratic constituencies. And, uh, and, and that's, that's appalling. That's anti-democratic. Uh, that, that has to be fought at every level. And this is one important level on which it has to be fought. So, yes, you could trim away some uh, parts of, of H.R. 1. And I personally uh, would, would be, would be, very happy if Democrats could find a way to pass through the divided, equally divided Senate, a bill that protects voting rights. That's the most important thing. We are much obliged to our leadoff big three guests tonight, uh, three of the very best from two of the great American newspapers, Peter Baker, Lisa Lair, Eugene Robinson. Thank you, gang, very much for taking our questions. Coming up for us, we were in the final few hours of life as we knew it. We just didn't know it on this night a year ago. We have, however, gathered together three of our medical experts to help assess what it is we've just been through and where we're headed.
As your cell phone photography timeline has no doubt reminded you already, tomorrow will mark exactly one year from the date the world really changed. It was March 11th, 2020. That was the day the WHO officially declared COVID a pandemic, warning of alarming levels of spread around the world. That's when the NBA suspended the remainder of its 2020 season here in the United States after the first player tested positive. That was when Tom Hanks posted on Instagram that he and his wife, Rita Wilson, tested positive for the virus while filming in Australia. Thankfully, they have both recovered and are back to work. On Wall Street, the market plunged. The Dow lost roughly 6% of its total value because traders could see what was coming. Then President Trump gave an Oval Office address announcing some travel from Europe would be banned. Back on March 11th, there were over 1,200 confirmed U.S. cases, 37 deaths that we knew of. Testing was still an exotic, far-off notion, extremely limited at the time. And a doctor who is these days a household name offered this warning to members of Congress. We will see more cases and things will get worse than they are right now. How much worse we'll get will depend on our ability to do two things, to contain the influx of in people who are infected coming from the outside and the ability to contain and mitigate within our own country. Bottom line, it's going to get worse. How remarkable to see a packed hearing room behind him. One year later, the United States has now surpassed 29 million cases and sadly, 531,000 souls lost. Here with us, three of the physicians who have kept us informed on matters of public health over this past year. Dr. Erwin Redliner, the founding director of the Columbia University National Center for Disaster Preparedness. Dr. Stephen Sample, he's an ER doc, Memorial Hospital and Healthcare Center out in Jasper, Indiana, is a volunteer clinical faculty member at Indiana University School of Medicine. And Dr. Eileen Marty is back with us at long last, professor of infectious diseases at Florida International University in Miami. In the past, she too has worked on global medicine matters with the World Health Organization. Well, good evening and welcome to you all, doctors. Uh, Erwin, I'll begin with you with a live picture that we found ourselves having not accessed for months at a time. This doesn't look too far from the height of the lockdown. This is Times Square in New York, uh, live picture, 1134 Eastern Time. Doctor, in your line of work, that picture means good news, not so for all those trying to make a living in Times Square businesses. But here's the leadoff question. How far have we come in this past year? And here's the subset question. How far have we come in these past 50 days? Well, it's been a remarkable time, uh, and it's like the slow boil of a frog. You know, we're not we're not feeling it as an impact, as an acute impact. It's happened gradually. But if you were sleeping for the last year and woke up now, what you would see is a changed America and a changed world in so many ways. It would take a long time to actually describe it. And one of the uh, the areas of fallout from all this, Brian, I thought it was going to take a really long time to establish uh, credibility and uh, in government because we've been so misled by uh, Donald Trump and his people, uh, so much incompetence. It, I, I thought it was going to be uh, literally years. But what we found ourselves now in 50 days, we have 
and in essence, restored confidence in the federal government. And it's not just me saying that. It's every poll is looking at very high numbers of approval for President Biden. But from a public health point of view, the progress we've made in 50 days is absolutely mind boggling. You know, we have, uh, like he said, we're going to have uh, all of uh, American adults vaccinated by the end of May. Uh, we do see real light at the end of a very dark tunnel. And uh, I'm uncharacteristically always being the, the half empty glass person. I'm feeling pretty good that we might have a pretty normal looking Thanksgiving if we keep this up. Maybe even a normal uh, few picnics on, on Labor Day. But I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but say it's looking good. There's good news. And there's also some problems and dangers lurking in the wings that we also need to talk about, including will variants get us get us into trouble? Will governors uh, going rogue and reckless, uh, uh, setting back the uh, the masking and other public health measures? Those are dangers and a threat uh, to all of us who really want to look at an optimistic view of what's coming up, Brian. Fascinating and comprehensive stuff uh, just there, Erwin. Dr. Marty, speaking of governors, you got a hell of a story down in your state, these allegations that wealthy white donors to Governor DeSantis were given the vaccine way ahead of their place in line. Uh, and yet we have to, we're duty bound to keep having this discussion as a public health matter about equity because of what this disease has done in black and brown communities across this country. You're absolutely right. We have to be very careful with equity uh, and in particular because black and brown communities overall, uh, more, more than other communities, are in many frontline types of industries and therefore more exposed. They're more likely to live in a housing situation of multi-generational homes and, uh, and have many underlying conditions because of, uh, because of their economic situations, because of many of their economic situations and all of that puts them at higher risk. So we do have to do that. And we're working very hard here in our personal community to reach out to uh, persons of uh, color uh, to make sure that they come in. And we're working with the churches in particular to try and get uh, back more people vaccinated from these lower income places. And I'm very pleased that President Biden is pouring over $250 million to the effort to help us get uh, people that are underprivileged vaccinated. Dr. Sample, talk about your life's work. Talk about the toll this has taken on doctors and nurses over the past year and the changes you've seen in your co-workers. Absolutely. Uh, good evening, Brian. Um, Doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and ER techs and janitors all over the hospitals all over the country are never going to be the same from this. Um, this is this is something like we have never seen in the public health sphere um, in our country. And I, I really consider myself to be actually one of the lucky ones. Um, I have plenty of friends that work on both the West Coast uh, and certainly up in New York City, uh, one right down in Elmhurst in Queens. Um, that was upside down in this so early, uh, screaming the alarm to all of us. And we, you know, us in the middle of the country who hadn't seen it yet, we were just running around, you know, like Chicken Little saying the sky is falling. Uh, but nobody really wanted to hear that uh, from me because it really wasn't falling here yet. 
Um, so I think that this is something that we will be telling our grandchildren and our great grandchildren about about what we were doing in the pandemic of you know 2020. All three of these physicians have agreed to stay with us while we fit in a short break here. Coming up, the hope that is just around the corner when we come back. We are back and right back into our conversation with these three medical professionals, Dr. Erwin Redliner, Dr. Stephen Sample, Dr. Eileen Marty. Dr. Redliner, to you again. Uh, just today's news was staggering. A hundred um, uh, million, a hundred million J&J vaccines. That's that's not 50 million uh, uh, Americans. That's 100 million vaccinated Americans. Uh, absolutely staggering and at such a high pace. Um, what else out there that may be in the pipeline is giving you hope? Well, there's, there's three things now, Brian. First of all, sustaining the public health measures. Secondly, this extraordinary progress we're making uh, with vaccines. But the third thing is that Merck is finishing research on an oral medication that could be prescribed to a person with COVID symptoms that will potentially eradicate the infection. So if we could do that, you know, like when you get in, when, if you have influenza, you can get a prescription for Tamiflu. We may have an equivalent drug literally around the corner in the next couple of months. That could be a total uh, game changer, Brian. Wow, uh, that would be that would be fantastic and would feel a lot more like normal life. Dr. Marty, uh, I say this knowing that perhaps millions of college kids are en route to a beach very close to where you live. Uh, so you have our condolences. They're going to fly anyway. That's what they do. A whole bunch of fully vaccinated Americans we're expecting more guidance from the CDC on travel. Uh, were you? Well, I, I pretty much agree with the position that the CDC has taken. Uh, they're absolutely correct. Every time that we've had uh, an, an increase in travel, there's been a, a jump in cases. And uh, hopefully, uh, the amount of vaccinations that we're giving might mitigate some of that impact. But I, I, I want you to be very keenly aware that um, in, in, here in South Florida, for example, our hospitalization rate has pretty much plateaued at a high level. It's not uh, it's not down at all. Uh, and so and we are turning over patients a lot more rapidly and sending them home sooner. So um, we have to be very concerned about these people coming and we're doing our best to get the message out to behave as properly as we can uh, to our community and to the visitors. That's disconcerting news indeed. Uh, and Dr. Sample, to you in the Midwest, how much, and I've, I've asked you this many times, but the answer is always interesting, how much vaccine hesitancy are you running into personally? Are you hearing about from your colleagues? And is there a better job that can be done on public service announcements, public health education by the feds? Yeah, you know, Brian, it's, it's really hard to say. You know, we're doing pretty well um, in Indiana as a whole. Uh, we have a Republican governor, but he's been uh, fairly moderate. Uh, he's not Florida. He's not Texas, certainly. Um, and I've appreciated his his sort of mitigation of COVID uh, in the state. 
Um, as far as hesitancy, you know, the loudest people get the most attention. So I certainly see people who uh, tell me about hesitancies and I try to educate them through that. Uh, but, you know, we've got over 500,000 people dead in the United States right now, largely because of the morons in the Facebook comments, right? And so that's the people that we're trying to reach. Only some of them are not going to be reachable. So we have to educate around them. Um, what we're going to have to do after this is all said and done, we're going to have to take a really close look at what worked to mitigate this, this virus uh, and what didn't work. And we're going to need to be honest with people because the inconsistency you know, of crossing a river and having a completely different set of rules is pissing off people. Um, and they are just spitefully doing whatever they want to do. So um, when it comes to vaccines, it's kind of the same way. We had mixed messaging. There was skepticism. Um, so it's hard to say, but in Indiana, we're doing pretty well as a whole. Well, good to hear. We'll take any good news we can get. Hey, doctors, as they say in the movies, this is not goodbye because we especially are going to continue to rely on you, uh, to educate all of us. It is thank you for the public health duty you have done through our airwaves to all of our viewers for this past highly stressful year. Dr. Redliner, Dr. Sample, Dr. Marty, can't thank you enough. Another break for us coming up in Texas tonight. The attorney general is mocking the mayor of Austin because it's Texas in the middle of a pandemic. We'll show you this story coming up. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Coronavirus restrictions in Texas officially ended today. The governor has ordered everything reopened, no masks, no problem, except in the city of Austin and the surrounding county where officials want to keep their mask mandate in place. The state's attorney general, Ken Paxton, isn't having it. He gave local officials there until 6 p.m. local time to lift their mandates or face a lawsuit. Paxton also couldn't help himself. He posted a snarky comment that read, quote, city county leaders must not be thinking clearly. Maybe it's oxygen deprivation from quintuple masking. Again, that's the chief law enforcement officer in the state of Texas. We get our report tonight from NBC News correspondent Morgan Chesky. Tonight, all eyes on Texas back open at max capacity. I am all for opening up the country, and I love that Texas has taken that step. The state's mask mandate over. No, it's a free-for-all. Business owner Kim Hunter is worried. Governor Abbott says he trusts every Texan to do the right thing. Yeah, common sense just is not common. They're not going to do the right thing. Texas, one of more than a dozen states without mask mandates. The move letting any business craft their own policy. Famed dance hall Billy Bob's sharing theirs, telling patrons, it's your choice. The Texas Rangers also taking advantage, becoming the first pro team nationwide to allow all fans back in the stands. 
Masks still required. In Austin, the state attorney general threatening legal action after the city superseded the governor's order with a public health mandate to mask up. It is the single most effective thing that we can do uh, to, to stop the transmission of this virus. The UK variant of the virus is especially concerning. Recent wastewater testing now shows it spreading through Houston. It's vaccinate as quickly as we can, continue wearing masks, and we will get there. Tonight, too early to tell. Morgan Chesky, NBC News, Dallas. And coming up for us, a final look back at where we were one year ago today. Last thing before we go tonight is about where we've been and a good question to consider. Where would we be tonight if the former president hadn't been a virus denier? If the response to the virus had been real and not malpractice, rigorous and not mismanaged? As we've said here before, part of our job, as we see it, is making sure we never forget. We owe that much to the dead and their loved ones, and over 1,500 more souls left us just today. So let's take this opportunity to remember what our president back then was saying on this day one year ago. You may remember this particular appearance. He had just appeared himself at a lunch of Senate Republicans. While in the room, he showed the senators an article from his pocket where Governor Newsom of California had said some nice things about him in print. But here is how the president talked about the virus a year ago. And if nothing else, it's a chance to remember the look of pious, silent worship on the face of Mike Pence as his president spoke. Right now, I guess we're at 26 deaths. And if you look at the flu, the flu for this year, we're at 8 million, we're, we're looking at 8,000 deaths and, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases, but we have 8,000 deaths. So you have 8,000 versus 26 deaths at this time. With all of that being said, we're taking this unbelievably seriously. And I think we're doing a really good job. And again, the task force headed up by the vice president has been fantastic. We're prepared and we're doing a great job with it. And it will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. We want to protect our shipping industry, our cruise uh, industry, cruise ships. Uh, we want to protect our airline industry. Very important. Uh, but everybody has to be vigilant and has to be careful. But be calm. It's really working out. And a lot of good things are going to happen. The consumer has never been in a better position. So how about all those good things that happened, especially you consumers out there, as the man said, you've never been in a more powerful position. And that is the man who put out a statement tonight hoping to be remembered and demanding credit for the vaccines that are now getting into the arms of Americans. That is our broadcast on this Wednesday night as well, with our thanks for being here with us on behalf of the good men and women at the networks of NBC News. Good night. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.